Chapter Thirteen of Survivors' Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. Survivors' Tales of Famous Crimes, edited by Walter Wood. Chapter Thirteen: The Newcastle Train Murder. Murders in English railway trains have been and are exceptional occurrences, so that when one is committed it arouses extraordinary interest, especially if the murderer remains undiscovered or is found only after considerable trouble and delay. Six years ago an uncommonly deliberate murder was committed in a train on the North Eastern Railway. The story is here retold from the narrative of Mr. J. Jameson, who was professionally associated with the trial from start to finish. There is a train which leaves Newcastle every morning at 10.27 for Alnmouth, just under 35 miles away to the north. It is a slow train and stops at all the stations until Alnmouth is reached at three minutes past noon. That train has been running for a long time, and it left the central station as usual on the morning of Friday, March the 18th, 1910. It went off in the ordinary way, and there was nothing whatsoever to distinguish its departure from the going of the train at any other time. Yet the 10.27 of March 18th was to be the scene of a singularly deliberate and callous murder, a crime which was brought home to the perpetrator by the forging of a number of links of evidence which separately might seem slight and unsubstantial, but which, when put together, formed a chain of unbreakable strength. The Newcastle train murder is an outstanding instance of the deadly nature of circumstantial evidence, and we shall see how, step by step, an unknown murderer was traced, brought to trial, convicted, and hanged. The train reached Alnmouth station up to time and was being examined in the customary manner when the foreman porter, Charlton, made a terrible discovery, for on opening the door of the third compartment of the first coach behind the engine he saw three streams of blood oozing across the floor, and that under the seat facing the engine was the body of a man lying face downward. The body was lying under the seat from end to end and had been pushed right under it. Charlton did not move the body, but called the station-master, the guard, and a porter. The local policeman was sent for, and the body was removed to a waiting-room, and the carriage taken to a siding. I was on the platform at the time, and saw the body discovered and removed, and I was from that time connected with the case until the end. It was soon seen that the murder had been committed, for the dead man had been shot in five places in the head. Two bullets were still embedded in the head, and it was found that one of these was nickel-capped and the other lead, and that they were of different calibre, leading to the conclusion that two revolvers had been used, but no traces of the weapons themselves were found, though there were signs of a struggle. A pair of broken spectacles was found, and a soft felt hat was picked up from the carriage floor. The murdered man was found to be John Innes Nisbet, a colliery cashier living in Newcastle, and there had been stolen from him a black leather bag containing 379S6D in money, mostly gold and silver. Nisbet was employed by the owners of the Stobswood Colliery near Widrington, about 24 miles from Newcastle. He was a married man, forty-four years of age, of slight build, and of an inoffensive disposition, not the sort of man to make enemies who would be likely to murder him. 
It was his custom to travel on alternate Fridays by the 1027 to Widrington, carrying money from a Newcastle bank for the payment of the miners' wages. Sometimes he carried as much as a thousand pounds, but owing to a coal strike he had with him at the time of the murder only the sum mentioned, yet it was a very considerable amount of money. Nisbet was a trusted and old servant of the colliery company, which promptly offered a reward of one hundred pounds for the discovery of the murderer. That discovery seemed likely to be an uncommonly difficult and baffling undertaking, because the murderer had completely escaped without leaving anything to identify him. The announcement of the crime, its deliberate nature, its deep mystery, and the fact that it was committed in a railway train aroused amazing interest throughout the country, as well as locally, and instant steps were taken to try and trace the murder to its source. In little more than an hour the news had been received by the Newcastle police, and the inquiries were to be made. The public interest was extraordinarily keen, as it was bound to be, in view of the fact that there was so closely involved the question of the safety of the travelling public. Let us see for the moment what Nisbet had been doing, and what had happened to him on that last fatal journey on a line which he knew so well, and on which he was so well known. It was his duty on that day to go to Lloyd's Bank at Newcastle to get a cheque cashed for the wages. He went to the bank, taking with him a black leather bag with a lock attached. At the bank he received gold in three canvas bags, silver in paper bags, and copper in brown paper parcels. One of the bags was marked Lambton Number 1, Lambton's bank having been amalgamated with Lloyd's. It is important to bear this point in mind. With the miners' wages in the bag, Nisbet went to the central station, where he was seen by a commercial traveller in the company of another man. The two were going towards number five platform from which the train started. The traveller knew both men quite well and saw them clearly. It happened also that a local artist, Mr. Wilson Heppel, saw a man whom he did not know, but who was Nisbet, go with the man whom he knew quite well and walk towards a third-class compartment close to the engine. Mr. Heppel saw the pair at the door of the compartment and noticed that one of them put his hand on the door. Mr. Heppel then walked away, and when he turned round he found that the men had disappeared, and had evidently entered the train. There was other evidence of Nisbet having been seen in the company of a man at the station, and it was clear that when the train started these two passengers were alone in the compartment near the engine. A particularly remarkable thing happened at Heaton Station, which is two stations from Newcastle. Nisbet lived quite close to Heaton Station, and it was his wife's custom to meet him at the station every fortnight as he passed through to Widrington for the purpose of having a little talk with him. Nisbet usually travelled in the rear of the train, but on this occasion she found that he was near the engine, and he put his head out of the window to attract her notice. The compartment was quite close to a tunnel, and a shadow fell on the seat of the carriage, but in spite of the shadow Mrs. Nisbet saw that another man was in the compartment, a man who never moved and had his collar turned up. He was at the far end of the compartment, facing the engine, and the profile was all that Mrs. Nisbet saw of the immovable figure. That brief sight became an incident of dramatic importance at a later stage. Widrington was the station at which Nisbet should have alighted, but he did not do so, and it was not until Almuth was reached that his murdered body was found. The body was alone, and the murderer had completely vanished. It was soon quite clear that the murder had been committed on the run between Stannington and Morpeth, a journey which occupies about six minutes, and is the longest that the 1027 makes. 
Nisbet had been seen at Stannington by two colliery clerks who knew him. They spoke to him and noticed that in the compartment was another man. That was the last time Nisbet was seen alive by anyone except the murderer. When the train reached Morpeth, the compartment was empty, or seemed to be, for a man opened the door and saw that there was no one inside, but for some reason he did not enter that compartment, but travelled in another. Further inquiries showed that when the train reached Morpeth, a man left it and tendered two and a half d to the ticket collector, that amount being the fare between Stannington and Morpeth. Such description as the collector could give of the appearance of the man who had paid the two and a half d and left the train corresponded with the description of the man who had seen by several persons in the company of Nisbet when he was on the platform and in the train. All these descriptions pointed to the conclusion that the man in whose company Nisbet had been last seen was John Alexander Dickman, who lived at One Lily Avenue, Jesmond. Dickman was a married man with two children, and had lived in Newcastle all his life. He had occupied various posts, and had undoubted ability, but for some time he had made his living on the turf. It became the duty of an inspector of police to call on Dickman, and accordingly on Monday afternoon, following the Friday of the murder, the officer went to his house and rang the bell. Dickman himself answered the ring and came to the door. He was wearing slippers and looked comfortable and perfectly calm. "'Are you Mr. Dickman?' said the inspector. "'Yes,' replied Dickman quietly. "'John Alexander Dickman?' the inspector asked, and he said again, "'Yes.' "'Were you at one time employed as a bookkeeper with a firm of shipbrokers in this city?' "'Yes,' said Dickman. Then the officer told him his name and rank, and that the Northumberland County Police had been informed that he was in Nisbet's company on the Friday morning, and that he had learned that he was an acquaintance of the murdered man. He said that the matter had been communicated by the county police to the city police, and that they were getting statements about the murder. The officer remarked that it was a terrible crime, and Dickman agreed, and they continued quite an ordinary general conversation for some little time, just like two disinterested persons discussing the affair that was claiming the attention of everybody. "'The county police,' said the inspector, "'would like to know if you can throw any light on the affair.' Then Dickman made a statement which was of the greatest importance. He said he had known Nisbet for many years, and that he saw him on Friday morning, and added, I booked at the ticket window with him, and went by the same train, but I did not see him after the train left. I would have told the police if I had thought it would do any good. Will you come to the detective office and see Superintendent Weddell and make a statement? said the officer, and Dickman promptly answered, Certainly. They then went back into the room in which he had been sitting, and he took off his slippers and put on his boots, and they were talking together still in just an ordinary manner. When he was ready, they returned to the door, and just as they were about to leave the house, his wife came. "'I shan't be long. I shall be back till tea,' said Dickman to his wife, and they went away together. Dickman was quite free, not handcuffed or secured in any way. They walked along the streets, chatting freely together about anything that came up. Dickman had been in the coal trade, and one of the things talked about was coal. When they reached the detective office, Dickman, after a few minutes, was introduced to Superintendent Weddell by the inspector, saying, "'This is Mr. Dickman, and he will give you a statement respecting what he knows about the train murder on Friday.' Dickman quite readily said that he would do so, and he voluntarily made a statement. 
The inspector did not know Dickman personally, but had made inquiries in consequence of information which had been telephoned by the county police, and it was not until he revealed the fact that he had travelled by the same train as Nisbet at the time of the murder that he felt sure he was talking with a man who had been described. Dickman's statement was to the effect that he took a return ticket for Stannington, and that Nisbet, whom he knew, was in the booking hall at the same time. Dickman bought a sporting newspaper at the bookstall, then went to the refreshment room, and afterwards took a seat in a third-class compartment near the end of the train. He believed that people entered and left the compartment at different stations on the journey, but he had no clear recollection of this happening. He did not notice the train passing Stannington, and so he went on to Morpeth, got out and handed his ticket with the excess fare two and a half D to the collector. He left Morpeth station and went to Stannington by the main road. Being taken ill on the way, he had returned to Morpeth to catch the one twelve p.m. train, but missed it. He then left the station and spoke with a man, after which he returned to the station, and went back to Newcastle by the one forty p.m. slow train. He said the journey to Stannington was made to see a Mr. Hogg at Dovecot, in connection with a new sinking operation there and added that he had been unwell since a Friday, but was out on Saturday afternoon and evening. That was a statement which was made voluntarily by Dickman in the presence of the superintendent and others. It was written down and handed to Dickman, who read it carefully and said that it was quite correct. In consequence of that statement, Dickman was detained and put up for identification, and his identity having been established to the satisfaction of the police, he was arrested by the superintendent, and after being cautioned he was charged with the murder of Nisbet. Dickman quite collectedly said, I don't understand the proceedings. It is absurd for me to deny the charge, because it is absurd to make it. I only say I absolutely deny it. Dickman had said that he would be home to tea, but he never went home again. After being charged, Dickman was taken away by the county police, and next morning, Tuesday, he was brought up at Gosforth Police Court just outside the city and remanded. Subsequently, he was brought up at the Moot Hall in Newcastle, where, more than three months later, he was indicated on the capital charge. During that long interval, many links were forged in the chain of evidence. The identification had been established, and in the search that was made of Dickman immediately after he was formally charged by the superintendent, there was found upon him the sum of seventeen pounds nine s eleven d in money, fifteen sovereigns being in gold in one of Lambton's small bank bags, and the murdered man had carried some of his money in one of these bags. The discovery of such a sum in Dickman's possession was significant, because inquiries shown that though he lived in a pretty good house in a good district, yet he was very hard up. In the search which was made of Dickman's house, there were found a life preserver, some pawn tickets, and two passbooks relating to the accounts which Dickman had had at two banks. A thorough search was made, but no trace of a revolver was seen, nor was the weapon with which the murder was committed ever been found. I say weapon because I may remark here that there is reason to believe that only one revolver was used, and that paper was wrapped round the smaller bullets to make them fit. The profile view which Mrs. Nesbit had seen of the man who was in the compartment with her husband at Eaton Station enabled her to recognize Dickman in a very remarkable manner. 
Just after she had given her evidence before the magistrate, she fainted and had to be taken from witness-box, fainted because, on looking at Dickman in the dock, she had got a profile view of him which enabled her to swear that he was the man who was in her husband's company just before the murder, when the compartment was standing in the shadow of the tunnel. That was most important help in proving the identification on which conviction must rest. Another important discovery was that of the missing money-bag, which was found on June ninth at Isabella Pitt. That pit lies between Stannington and Morpeth, and it had got into disuse because of the accumulation of water. On June ninth, the colliery manager went down early in the morning to examine the air shaft, and in doing so he found a leather bag with some coppers in it. There were also a considerable number of coppers lying around the spot at which the bag was found. On the following day other coppers were found, making a total of 19S 3D. This bag was proved to be the one in which Nisbet was carrying money at the time of the murder. A large hole had been cut in one side of it, leaving the lock still secure. The colliery manager was able to say that Dickman knew of the existence of the Isabella pit and of the collection of water in it, and that he knew Dickman personally, as nine years previously they had been fellow workmen. Dickman at one time had been secretary of a small land-scale colliery at Morpeth Moor, land-scale collieries being so-called because they sell the coal at the pit-head, so that he knew the district and its collieries well. All these and other facts were proved when, at the Newcastle summer assizes before Lord Coleridge, Dickman was tried for the murder of Nisbet. The trial began on Monday, July the 4th, and lasted for three days. The case for the Crown was presented by Mr. E. Tyndall Atkinson, K.C., and Mr. C. Lowenthal, while Mr. Mitchell Innes, K.C., and Lord William Percy were counsel for the defence. For the prosecution it was shown that Dickman was in want of money, and it was suggested that robbery was the motive of his crime. It was also suggested that when he left Morpeth Station and tendered the two-and-a-half D excess fare, he had stolen the bag of money hidden under his overcoat, and that he cut the bag open, took from it the gold and silver, and threw the bag and the coppers down Isabella Pit, which had an iron grating over the mouth, but the grating could be raised, and the bars were wide enough to admit the passage of a fair-sized article. It was shown that Dickman's story that he had gone to Dovecot on March the 18th to keep an appointment with Mr. Hogg was false. Mr. Hogg had no appointment with him, and did not know that he was coming. It was shown, too, that a fortnight before the murder was committed, Dickman made the journey which he undertook on the 18th, and it was suggested that he did so with the object of rehearsing his crime. As soon as the case for the prosecution was closed, evidence for the defence was given, given by Dickman himself, who stepped from the dock and entered the witness-box. He had been calm and collected from the start, and he was apparently unmoved even now, when more than ever he was in peril of his life. He answered the questions of Lord William Percy quietly. One thing he said was that he had an account at Lambton's bank, and that possibly the bag which was found upon him was got from that bank. The cross-examination was, of course, the deadly part of the period in the witness-box, but still Dickman never flinched. He particularly sought to discredit the evidence of Mr. Heppel, which was so fatal to him, by suggesting that Mr. Heppel's faculties had failed and that he had made a complete mistake, though the fact was that the two men had known each other for many years, and that on the 18th Mr. Heppel was only about eighteen feet away when he saw Dickman at the central station. 
Mr. Heckle received the greater part of the hundred-pound reward. Dickman was the only witness called on his own behalf. He had stood the terrible test amazingly well, and so calm was he at the finish that when his counsel said, "'That is all I ask you,' he said, alluding to two overcoats which had been produced, "'Shall I take these coats or leave them?' "'Leave them,' answered counsel quietly. "'That is my case.' Then Dickman returned to the dock. Mr. Tyndall Atkinson addressed the jury for the Crown, and Mr. Mitchell Innes made an earnest appeal for the prisoner, suggesting that two murderers killed Nisbet, and that, therefore, the whole of the case for the Crown failed. After that address the court adjourned, and on the third day Lord Coleridge summed up in a wonderfully clear manner. Just before one o'clock the jury retired to consider their verdict, and, after an absence of rather more than two and a half hours, they re-entered the court with a verdict of guilty, delivered in a tense and dreadful silence. Even then Dickman protested that he was entirely innocent, and that he had nothing to do with the crime. A man who was just behind Dickman when the judge passed sentence of death stated that he well remembered that the veins behind the prisoner's ears seemed to swell and stand out in an extraordinary manner, showing that, though outwardly calm, he was deeply affected by the appalling position in which he found himself. He remembered, too, the judge saying, "'In your hungry lust for gold you had no pity upon the victim whom you slew.' and that when sentence had been passed dickman once more declared in a firm voice audible throughout the court that he was innocent the condemned man unsuccessfully appealed and on the morning of august tenth he was hanged in newcastle jail on the night before he was executed the chaplain of the prison sat up late with him and on the morning of the execution it is stated that he said dickman will you die with a lie on your lips "'I will say nothing,' replied Dickman. "'No trace of the revolver with which the murder was committed has been found, "'nor has most of the stolen money, "'but there are few who doubt that after the murder "'Dickman made his way to some woods near Morpeth, "'cut the bag open and took out the gold and silver, "'and that he hid part, at least, of the plunder. "'At the time of the trial and after Dickman's conviction, "'there was a strong feeling in some quarters "'that he had been condemned on insufficient evidence.' But, as a matter of fact, the evidence, though circumstantial, was such as to leave no shadow of doubt as to the accused man's guilt in the mind of his judges, either in Newcastle or London. Then, as to any suggestion of harsh treatment or unfairness in any way by the police, let it be remembered that when Dickman was called upon at his house he was scarcely in the position of being even suspected, but the matter became different indeed when he confessed that he had seen the murdered man at the station and travelled by the same train. That voluntary revelation was of the greatest importance and formed one of the strongest links in the chain of evidence which sent John Alexander Dickman to the gallows. End of chapter 13 The Newcastle Train Murder Recording by Ashley Jane